Welcome to Under My Roof, an Orthodox Christian podcast in which we explore questions of importance to life in the modern world. I am your host, Father Jacob Seaman, Rector of St. Theodore and St. Tyler's Orthodox Church in Cardiff, Wales, and Chaplain to Orthodox Christians at Cardiff University. My jurisdiction is the Archdiocese of Russian Orthodox Churches in Western Europe, based in Paris, and I serve under Metropolitan Jean of Dubnac. It is a joy to discuss matters of faith and theology, and I hope that you will join me in these discussions both now and for future episodes. But for now, let's drop in on today's episode of Under My Roof. Well, greetings, and uh, welcome back to the Under My Roof podcast. I'm here talking with Dr. Joshua Mathen-Brown, who um, is already familiar to me from the fact that we worked together here in Cardiff, Wales for many years before he moved back to his native United States. And um, in that time, he managed to complete both his MA in philosophy, followed by his PhD in philosophy at the University of Birmingham. And while I am aware of Uh, the topic. I'm aware of his discipline. Um, He's never entirely managed to convince me of the uh, importance of that discipline in the Eastern Christian intellectual uh, tradition. So I thought we would give today over to discussing uh, the place of philosophy in the Christian tradition as a whole, and then bring it um, down to uh, how it relates specifically to Eastern Christianity, to Orthodox Christianity. So, Joshua, although I've just mentioned sort of a couple of, of uh, you know, very, very superficial details, can you tell me a little bit about your academic background? Sure, of course. Um, I should add that I didn't leave uh, Cardiff because of working with you. Um, it, was a, <laughs> it was a joy and a pleasure, I, um, something I cherish very much, the time I got to spend there. So, And you are uh, much missed here. So uh, one day we shall uh, um, uh, reunite and uh, God willing, can celebrate uh, together. But uh, in the meantime, yeah, we've got, we've got Zoom and we've got uh, philosophy and theology to talk about. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so uh, I, you know, I grew up um, in an evangelical Protestant um, home, and did not have any um, real serious engagement with philosophy. I didn't really know what philosophy was growing up. Um, a little bit of theological engagement. Um, my father always had. My father's a, a Protestant minister, and so he always had some theology books laying around the house. I would kind of pick them up and peruse them. Um, But it wasn't until, uh, you know, I graduated from high school. And at the time I lived in North Carolina, then we uh, immediately after graduating, I moved back to Texas where I was born in in Fort Worth and got a job as a, uh, uh, well, it was kind of an odd job at a bank. I was picking up, driving around, picking up deposits from companies all day and listening to the radio um, as I drove around doing this. And at that point, I wasn't really intending to even go to college. Um, I hated my high school experience and uh, I thought, I I don't care about that stuff. Uh, My grandfather gave me 
some money and said, I really want you to take a class at the community college, just see how it goes. And I said, okay, I'll do that. So as I said, I'm, my job is I'm driving around, listening to the radio, picking up deposits from various companies and bringing them back to the bank. And one day I'm listening and they, there's a show I, I would listen to on the public radio station, NPR. And uh, I can't remember the name of the host is so many years ago, but he would always have interesting speakers and two opposing viewpoints and they would have a debate. And I, it was on all sorts of topics, everything from, you know, art history to politics to, you know, and everything else. Um, and this particular day he had, um, two philosophers uh, on this show debating whether or not God existed. And one was an atheist, uh, the other was a theist, obviously, and they had co-written this book. Um, the book was essentially a transcript of their debate. And so they were kind of, you know, doing the circuit, promoting the book. Mm -hmm. And so they kind of did the part of the debate on this radio show. And uh, I had never in my life encountered anyone talking about religion in this type of intellectual way um, and, and invoking philosophy, which I also didn't know much about. Um, and so I found that it just kind of captured my imagination. I personally found it interesting because, of course, I was also at the time encountering, um, you know, lots of, uh, I'd made friends with someone who had grown up a Christian who was now an atheist and had a lot of kind of anti-Christian, anti-religious ideas being thrown at me, which I didn't really know how to deal with. Um, and so now I'm hearing, you know, these people engaging at kind of a deep intellectual level. And so I like got off work, drove to the bookstore, bought the book and started reading through that. And then, like I said, uh, my grandfather, you know, he encouraged me to take this college class. So I go to college, the community college, sign up for philosophy 101 because <laughs> yeah. I was like, this is cool. I want to learn more. And so thankfully in that class, I had an incredibly just enthusiastic, really interesting professor who, even though we met at like eight in the morning, uh, he would come in and like and just lead us in these profound discussions. And, and so that was kind of a gateway for me uh, to suddenly becoming aware of philosophy and and kind of more deeper philosophical theology. Um, and yeah, so from there I transferred over to a four-year small liberal arts college that did a humanities degree, and that was kind of the gateway into the world of um, the history of ideas and especially philosophy for me. Thanks for sharing that. I mean, I actually, I find the whole story uh, fascinating. And despite my um, uh, sort of glib comments at the very beginning about not being convinced of the place of uh, philosophy in the Eastern Christian tradition, of course, I don't, I don't really mean it, but because I'm not a natural philosophical theologian, uh, my, my, um, my instincts are always toward the historical. It's something that obviously lies outside of my, what you might call my natural theological remit. But you <clears throat> just used two terms a moment ago. You talked about philosophical theology and philosophy. And of course, those are um, distinct disciplines. Um, you yourself are very much a man of faith, active in the Orthodox uh, Church. Um, and I guess you have uh, sort of 
described your 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 discovery of philosophy as it relates to religion and i guess i i, I want you to unpack if you don't mind um a little bit of what you understand i suppose philosophy to be as opposed to theology and why you chose to go down the the philosophical path specifically as opposed to a, a more um rounded theological path yeah that's a really good question so in the, the humanities degree that I did for my bachelor's kind of had a great mix of, we did, we looked at history. Um, I did a lot of theology, you know, like, um, I mean, the school I was at, it was a Baptist college. Um, and so of course there was a bigger emphasis on reformation history, especially, you know, in Western Europe and how that developed there. But, um, so I was exposed to kind of like historical theology and biblical theology, that kind of thing. Um, and it's not that I didn't have an interest in those things, but um, for me, I, I kept finding myself always more drawn to these uh, philosophical kind of questions. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's just the personal, I don't know, it's just, it's just me. Like I, I, you know, I was, I wanted to know, like, well, can you know if God exists? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, are there good reasons outside of just kind of, um, uh, I'm not discounting a personal experience. That's really important. Um, but I wondered, you know, mm -hmm. can you know, know that God exists? And if so, what can we know about God? And how could we know things about God? And then other questions like, you know, how do we know what's right and wrong? Like these mm -hmm. deeper questions about the nature of morality, what grounds uh, morality. And I don't just all of those questions just kind of always immediately sparked my imagination and I'd find myself gravitating towards this. So that's why after uh, my bachelor's, when I did decide to go back to school, um, I, I, I decided to choose philosophy because I just found myself, you know, really excited about those questions. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that, yeah, that got me um, headed in that direction just because of my own enthusiasm and interest uh, in those those types of questions what was the you, I, I think there was two parts to that question i don't know if i covered both of them well i think you did you, you you certainly answered what what i was sort of looking for you to answer and and uh i find that really helpful i mean there there's the whole uh question we could look at if you wanted to of the distinction between say philosophy and um philosophical theology um but we might actually touch on that now i mean one of the things that i would be loath to uh think i'd done over the course of our conversation is to leave in the mind of a listener or a viewer um this idea that somehow um theology is compartmentalized so strictly that i could be a historical theologian without knowing anything about philosophical theology or biblical theology or uh, moral theology etc and you have um incidentally i think um shown us that um indeed you can't really separate all of these things and make them discrete and absolute categories of theology that in fact they feed into one another and that leads me to where i want to go really and that is um the idea that we're both aware of and that is the importance of philosophy and feeding into the developing christian understanding early on in in christian history of trinity of incarnation 
And I, I wonder if you could just maybe uh, talk about what you understand by the role of philosophy in the development of, of early Christian theology uh, in general, uh, or if you want to take us down a specific line because it interests you by all means. But yeah, could you just say something about um, the role of philosophy, particularly in early um, Christian doctrinal development? Yeah, and I really liked what you you just said, <clears throat> and I agree with it wholeheartedly. Like today, we tend to compartmentalize knowledge, um, mm. and it's kind of a problem, and it can be a problem um, when you have, for example, in philosophy, which I know much more about. You know, we tend to say we have metaphysicists over here, epistemologists, mm. and ethicists, and <clears throat> they're all kind of doing their own thing. And they like, especially in the tradition, I'm, I'm more trained in the analytic philosophical tradition. There's this tendency to zoom in, like it's really close, like, and get into the minutia of like one concept, you know, yeah. and you'll just see like a tons of literature published on uh, what does grounding mean? What does that term refer to? And it was like, you know, and you have these guys that are just experts and they know, they could tell you everything about the past 20 years of writing mm -hmm. about grounding. Like, uh, what does it mean for um, something to ground something or explain it metaphysically? And now that's not necessarily bad because, you know, it is good to zoom in and to get really into the minutia of something like that and to talk about it in that way. But the, the problem is if you're so zoomed in, that's all you know, mm. um, you miss really important things and connections being made. And that can happen in theology too. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's not just in philosophy. I mean, if, if you, you know, zoom in and you're like, all I care about is whatever, some de particular development and theology that happened in Western Europe in the 1600s or something, and that's all you ever read and think about, that's not necessarily bad. I mean, it's good to have someone who is an expert in that, but then you miss these connections. One of the things I picked up on when I would start reading patristic writers, um, the ancient ones is they seem to and it kind of not compartmentalize mm -hmm. uh, for them. There really is no distinction at all between uh, what we're calling philosophical theology and historical theology and biblical theology and rhetoric, like all these disciplines to them. It's like one activity and that is trying to gain understanding and trying to communicate the faith clearly and um, yeah, so they seem to have this more uh, broad view and they don't, you know, they're, they're happy to, to pull from uh, any ideas that they've encountered in the ancient um, philosophers, you know, for example, to um, explicate Christian doctrine. And they do so in a creative way. So it's not, they're not like um, kind of slavishly just repeating, oh, well, you know, um, St. Paul said this or St. Irenaeus said this and that's it. Um, they, they build on those ideas and draw upon whatever was fashionable during their time. So Neoplatonic, Stoic philosophers, um, again, to try to solve new problems um, because questions being asked by people about the faith, for example, to, to go back to what you brought up about the Trinity incarnation, questions about the incarnation being asked in the third or fourth century are not necessarily the same ones that were being thought about um, in the second century, you know? Mm -hmm. um, 
And so, and then this goes on, you know, you, you, with the, throughout the history of the church. And I think we sometimes lose some of that today because the way academia is set up is all these departments and, 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 and you know, you kind of specialize in one area and you forget that um, these aren't really completely separate activities and they feed into each other. But yeah, I, I had this great quote um, from Anna Zirkova, um, who talks about, it just kind of just touches on, um, again, what you brought up about how did philosophy play a role in the development of Christian doctrine? Mm -hmm. It played a major role. Like, there's no way to study the development of Trinitarian or incarnational theology and, and not talk about philosophy. And specifically, like Neoplatonic, Aristotelian, and Stoic philosophy. Um, like these play a major role. Mm -hmm. um, and theologians were, like I've already mentioned, they're quite happy to say, let me borrow this philosophical term from the Stoics and maybe add a little bit of Aristotelian or Platonic flair to it and like use that to explain the incarnation or the, you know, the Trinity or whatever else they're trying to talk about in theology. So really to, under, to even understand what's going on when you read these ancient theologians, you do have to have a little bit, you have to be conversant with ancient philosophy or you're not going to get what's happening. Right. Um, there's a quote here. I just, this kind of highlights this. Uh, so I'm not, you know, just to prove to you, it's not just me mm -hmm. making this up. Um, and uh, she's writing, there's actually a book. Uh, this is a chapter, uh, as you know, this is comes from our, our co-edited volume. So <laughs> a little plug there, Eastern <laughs> Christian approaches to philosophy. <laughs> um, and she's actually talking about this very subject, uh, right. the development of the Trinity, you know, the concept of the Trinity. And, and um, she says the Byzantine defenders of the Chalcedonian doctrine um, that just mentioned, it is fair to say, realize that the conceptual apparatus appropriated by the language of theology in earlier centuries uh, from various philosophical doctrines was not only insufficient to express the truth of the incarnation, but also destructive where the latter was concerned. And by the time of the Christological debates of the sixth century, theological teachings and doctrine, uh, doctrinal statements were in many cases being formulated with the help of conceptions and notions that had been adopted from various philosophical schools and systems. Those ideas were by no means in absolute accord with one another. So their being applied together tended to engender more problems than it solved. In Christology in particular, we see the adoption and application of a quasi-Aristotelian conception of substance paired with a stoic conception of process that itself presupposed an essentially different understanding of substance. And she goes on to talk about this. And what you see is like thinkers, later ones like St. John of Damascus, they're sifting through like the opening. This is often ignored. Like we published in English his uh theological treatise on the orthodox theology but the whole first half there's that's actually three books mm. that he wrote the first half is all philosophy and all what he's doing is trying to sift through okay here are how the the different fathers of the church have used all these terms like substance or form or essence and you know hypostasis and all those terms that are used in philosophy to talk about uh god and talk about the incarnation and he goes through this and he tries to clarify and explain. So 
I guess the point being that um, from what I can see and what I can tell, like philosophy seems to be inseparable from Christian thinking and the Christian doctrine. Um, and so I do get baffled sometimes when I encounter, I think, well-meaning Orthodox Christians. I, I'm not trying to down them, but maybe some Orthodox Christians who think somehow philosophy is this somehow foreign to orthodoxy or at odds with an orthodox phronema or something like that. Um, I'm like, how, where are you getting this from? Like, I, I don't well, understand. <laughs> as, as an historian here, I can say that, uh, you know, they will have partly picked that up, of course, from somebody like De, uh, St. Ephraim the Syrian, who uh, very much had what, uh, I'm not sure I coined the term. I like to think I did, but a, a phrase I used uh, in, 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 um, uh, my first uh, book, uh, Odium Grecorum, uh, you know, the, the ha hatred of the Greeks. And, and it's just this, it's the suspicion he used um, um, toward uh, sort of um, philosophical theology. I mean, he was much more of a poetic theologian, you might say. And, and, um, and there is, of course, um, an infinite, an, an infinite amount to be made of, of his legacy. Um, but, uh, it includes at least um, on the surface a rejection of of much sort of Greek uh, philosophical um, contribution to the theological process. Um, anybody uh, sort of reading him critically will, of course, recognize that even as he's um, even as he's verbally dismissing the Greeks, so to speak, he's deploying their exact motifs through the course of his poetry. So he can't really <laughs> avoid them. But uh, it is it is worthy uh, of note um, that, in fact, um, there is language of rejection in, in the Orthodox tradition and, and uh, one that uh, is not perhaps altogether helpful or perhaps not that I would um, uh, attribute dishonesty to the great uh, saint of Syria for one moment, but, um, you know, it's not altogether um, straightforward that um, he means what he's saying, not, not in that way. So, but let's, let's bring the conversation forward by uh, uh, almost two millennia and uh, think about uh, current um, challenges presented to faith in general, particularly uh, from an Orthodox point of view. I mean, the last 20 years has seen the, um, at least a moment, if not um, something much greater, of, of radical public atheism. And uh, I just wonder if, and of course, that's only one example, but I just wonder if um, it's important to treat these challenges from an orthodox point of view, or are they, and I'm going to deliberately make a, a sort of a mischievous separation between East and West here, but um, is it something that is actually particular to the West that we could just leave Westerners to deal with? Or, you know, is it something that enriches the uh, the orthodox um, sort of intellectual world um, to to deploy our mental resources to to wrestling with those questions? You could talk about that in terms of atheism if you wanted, but really pick a topic and 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 tell me what you think in that in in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I so here's the thing: orthodoxy is in the West. Um, it, you know, with with immigrants into Western Europe and, and North America, um, orthodox are now all over the world, and mm. um, 
it, it doesn't, to me, it doesn't work to say, oh, those are Western problems. We can just ignore them um, because they're not just Western problems. They're, they're Orthodox problems too, um, because we have Orthodox Christians living um, in a Western context and trying to live out their faith and trying to share their faith with others. And so Orthodox Christians, like anyone else who is um, a, a theist or religious in some sort, are going to encounter, like you just pointed out, this, you know, the, the kind of popular um, new atheist style kind of critiques of religion. Um, and, you know, um, I don't think um, it's a good thing or a positive thing to just bury our heads in the sand and, and pretend like we have nothing to do with that. Mm. Um, and in fact, it does impact people's lives. I mean, from a pastoral perspective, um, you know, if, if any priests I've met, <laughs> you know, uh, working in the Western context is going to be encountering people who have questions about religion, about faith. They have critiques. They have things they've heard. Um, my own children encounter these things when they watch a TikTok video and they've got some, you know, uh, bold new atheist, you know, mm. young person, and they say all these things about religion. And so um, from a pastoral perspective, from even someone with children, you know, um, I can choose to say, I don't know about that stuff. And I, you know, and that's not very helpful for someone who who's being challenged with these and wrestling with these kind of um, critiques and questions. Um, so I think just ignoring it is not wise. It's not prudent. I don't think any one of these great patristic theologians we hold up with esteem would have, would have done that at all. In fact, I see the opposite. Any, you know, just about any major theologian of the church you can point to knew about the current science, the current philosophy of the day. They knew about critiques of Christianity from pagan authors, and they knew how to address them and engage with them at their own level. Um, so again, uh, to pretend like somehow now in the 21st century, that's not true. That's not a good thing for the church seems odd to me and seems harmful and potentially harmful for the souls of people who have, who are maybe even searching and wanting to know, I want to believe in God. I want to find truth, you know, and I'm looking for someone who might take my questions seriously and maybe has some good answers. So as Orthodox Christians, we need to be engaged in that. And we need to bring our rich heritage, our spiritual tradition, our theology and our philosophy and all of that to bear in these conversations. So um, for me personally, that's what I, you know, that's one of the things that motivate me in my academic work. And as I try to do public engagement too with, uh, with bringing what I'm doing and others are doing in philosophy and theology to, mm -hmm. Uh, present it to everyday people who have interests. Um, I think it's, um, you know, really important that we do this and, and not just ignore it and kind of uh, just act like it's some kind of Western problem and that we're not touched by it. I think that answer is uh, extremely helpful and extremely important. You knew I would, though. Um, <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> let me... Um... Let me ask you though, and, and I think this is particularly interested then, uh, interesting then. Taken, given what you've just said about sort of the importance of 
of deploying our intellectual tools, um, you know, in the in the in their fullness uh, to the questions that that we face. Other, you know, lest we sort of, in many ways, betray the intelligence of the faith, but also betray betray those who who make inquiry. Um, is there a specific question, or is there a series of questions that you think an Eastern Christian philosophical approach can shed greater light on today than might exist if we were to uh, abandon uh, the West to to its own thing? Does that make any sense? Um, judging by your nod, it does. In which case, can I just ask you um, to to share with us an example, if you can think of one, um, any sort of question? Yeah, I well, I'll just share an example from my own work. Um, you know, something recently, and again, I'm going to keep plugging the book, uh, Eastern Christian Approaches to Philosophy. Get the book. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's 150 bucks, but you know, <laughs> maybe you can find it in your library. Um, so yeah, I, so for me, I've I have personally been really intrigued by atheism. Mm -hmm. um, I have friends, good friends, that are atheists. I have, uh, you know, like, like I told you in my, you know, coming out of high school, I was bombarded by, that was right when the new atheist stuff was really kicking off and getting really popular. Mm -hmm. You know, those, those public uh, intellectuals like Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, and, and, you know, Sam Harris, those kind of names that were mm -hmm. in, in America and in Great Britain were kind of really popular. Um, and so I've been fascinated by atheism. I've, you know, I've wanted to wrestle with it and understand it. And, and philosophically, atheism is the, discussed at a very sophisticated level, and there are arguments for the non-existence of God. Um, these are academic arguments. These aren't just the kind of more pithy, you know, kind of statements you see with these popular level people. So <clears throat> like folks like Richard Dawkins, he's really funny. He's really witty. And he's got these kind of quips, he says, about religion. Um, his critiques, though, philosophically of like the existence of God are very weak. Um, they're not, there's not much substance there. Um, it's kind of like undergrad level writing. Um, and, you know, um, so I'm not talking about that stuff, but there are serious kind of um, rigorous arguments in philosophy that you can find by, you know, um, really serious philosophers that have critiqued religion and proffered these arguments for the non-existence of God. And this stuff has been debated and talked about, and it does spill over into the popular level and the popular mind. Um, and so, for example, all of these in, in the Western context and Anglophone philosophy, the analytic tradition that I'm much more familiar with, um, these kind of critiques about the existence of God are all targeting this conception of God that is completely foreign to an orthodox conception of God. So I'm going to call this, there's different things we can call it. There's people debating right now, uh, what, what should we call this conception of God? Some people refer to it as theistic personalism. Some people like to talk about it as neoclassical theism. Um, there's problems with all the labels, but I'm going to stick with theistic personalism because it's just one I use in my writing and it's helpful. Um, roughly someone who's a theistic personalist believes that God is basically a person in the same sense that you and I are persons, only invisible and has personal properties like, say, having knowledge or being good or being powerful, like to a maximal degree. So you and I have these to a, some minimal degree. 
Um, I have a certain amount of knowledge, um, but God has like the maximal knowledge. And we, we use terms like um, omniscient, those fancy terms for that, and omnipotent and omnibenevolent, you know, these omni properties. And so um, the philosophical critiques, um, these arguments for the non-existence of God kind of approach that saying, oh, okay, well, we know what kind of thing God is. God is this bundle of properties, a person that has these, you know, maximal knowledge, maximal goodness, um, maximal power. And, okay, so if we can show that maybe, A, we can show that it's impossible for any person to possess, say, omnipotence, to be all-powerful, then we can show that God doesn't exist. Or if we can show that it's impossible for any person to simultaneously be all-knowing and all-powerful, then we can show God doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Or if we can show uh, out there in the world, there's just some fact of reality, like the fact of seemingly meaningless, gratuitous evil, um, like the suffering of a fawn in the forest uh, who gets caught in the forest fire and dies a slow, horrible death, or you know, terrible things. We can enumerate terrible things that happen to people every day. Um, this fact doesn't seem compatible with there being a person who possesses these kind of maximal person properties, you know, being all knowing, all powerful, all good. And if we can show that, then we can show God doesn't exist or it's improbable or unlikely that God exists. And that's how the discourse has gone. There's like a ton of literature on this, a ton of versions of these, but they all have the same strategy and they're all targeting the same concept of God, what I'm calling theistic personalism. Um, And, um, What's interesting to me is reading that, I think, as an Orthodox Christian, it's just kind of bizarre. You're like, well, we we don't talk about God this way. So here, this is where an Orthodox perspective, I think, is very helpful in the context of a discussion like this. We're apophatic um, theologians, and there's this tradition that's ancient that, that comes up into today where we understand that we can't know God's essence. We can't know what kind of being God is. God is um, not a being in the same sense in which we talk about you and I being beings, not a person in the same sense that you and I talk about ourselves as being persons. And when we, we talk about God having knowledge or being good or being the beautiful, like we don't mean that in the same sense that I would say, um, you know, a piece of art is beautiful or the sunrise is beautiful or that you're a good person, you know, um, you're a good man. Um or you know something, or I have some knowledge. Like we don't mean these terms in the same sense um, because God is beyond being. God is um, ineffable. What God is, we can't say. Um, We can talk about God in terms of his energies that we participate in, God's activities. God relates to the world. But even then we're using analogical uh, terms. Um, You know, God is, um, you know, we talk about God having <clears throat> being good or being loving or something like that because of God, what God does. God is love because God um, creates something other than himself. He brings the universe into existence and sustains it. And God becomes incarnate in the world. You know, and, I mean, so this is a, a distinctive kind of orthodox Christian way of thinking about God and understanding God that if you then apply this to this contemporary debate about does God exist? Here are some reasons not to believe God exists. 
um, it shows that that kind of whole line of reasoning about the non-existence of God uh, doesn't apply at all mm-hmm. to an Orthodox Christian conception of God and how we relate to God. And in fact, it kind of undercuts every single one of those arguments really nice and neat. You don't need to address each argument mm-hmm. and say, oh, I can prove that there is a being who is all knowledgeable according to this. And we get these like in philosophy, increasingly more complex and weird definitions of what it is to be omniscient to try to show no it is possible for a person to be omniscient let me you know come up with this crazy like paragraph long definition of omniscience that have all these technical terms and like (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. um we don't need to do that because god isn't omniscient in the same sense that we might be talking about a a person like you and i being omniscient Mm -hmm. Uh, we need to rethink what we mean by god being omniscient and from an orthodox perspective you know that's not part of God's essence. We don't know God's essence. Um, and so uh, that's that's just one example on which the richness of the Orthodox experience and faith and understanding of God can then be used in a Western context to uh, respond to a challenge to faith being offered by Western Anglophone philosophers of religion who are trying to, to show us that God doesn't exist. Um, there's lots of other examples, you know, that one can point to. That's the one that I've kind of worked on. I love everything you've just said. I mean, not not because it sort of, you know, vindicates me and my faith, um, but because, uh, first of all, it, it just, it does illustrate the sort of, you know, richness of perception that, and but equally the difference in perception that, that can exist East and West. And, um, and, Equally, I can think about sort of the the potential sort of ramifications for things that you've just described. I mean, the implications for aesthetics, the implications for morality. I mean, they're, they're all sort of um, held within the concept of God that you've just described emerging from sort of Eastern Christian thought. So I just found that extremely helpful. Um, finally, because I'm conscious of time, um, I of wonder, I mean, considering... Uh, the thrust of this whole discussion, if now's not um, uh, an appropriate moment at which to flag the book from which you've uh, quoted once and already spoken about, you reach for yours and uh, <laughs> I'll reach for mine. But uh, I wonder if you uh, wouldn't tell us something about this book and uh, you know what what uh, the um, what the thought was behind it and 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 its genesis. Yeah, um, well, its genesis was. Um, it kind of started from my own work, which I just described to you mm-hmm. um, on, on atheism. And I came to realize that really in contemporary Anglophone philosophy, there's virtually no engagement uh, with Eastern Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that's changing a little bit now, um, but really um, the focus has been on, um, I'd say, you know, you, you see a lot of emphasis on thinkers like Augustine or Thomas Aquinas, um, William of Ockham, those kind of scholastic Western medieval scholastic thinkers. And then, of course, uh, the kind of m- modern thinkers like Descartes and Leibniz, and those are like get a lot of coverage. Um, but um, that's it. Uh, you know, that's kind of, it, you know, where, where all of this the discussion in philosophy is about. So I thought... Um, there really needs to be um, a book that 
kind of maybe encourages people to start looking to the East, looking at Orthodox tradition and Orthodox thinkers and learning more about um, their approaches to philosophy. And then maybe seeing if we can take that and apply it to contemporary problems in philosophy. And hopefully, so I'm hoping the book is kind of a gateway really into getting people excited about exploring this further. Um, we tried to cover and survey a lot of different topics in philosophy. So everything from historical uh, philosophy, you know, the developments of um, philosophy in the East historically to philosophers religion and um, metaphysics. We've got some chapters on epistemology and a philosophy of language. Um, then we get into like uh, bio, bioethics and environmental ethics and then social issues like human rights, things like that. So we try to cover as many topics that just show that um, the East has something to bring to the table that's interesting. Um, sometimes these are novel new perspectives. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they might be actually quite similar to Western perspectives, but they might have a slight different spin or approach, you know, um, and uh, it might enrich or broaden um, the discussion, you know, um, that we can have and then maybe encourage people to go further into exploring, you know, say like, well, what does orthodoxy have to say about um, human rights or, you know, that's a really important topic that's being discussed and debated right now or uh, like, you know, about the nature of God and, his, you know, how we understand God and these kind of questions. So. Um, that was the genesis of the book and the project. And, um, you know, it's an academic volume. It's not a, a New York Times bestseller kind of thing. So it's not going it, to, it is a bit pricey. Mm -hmm. um, you know, hopefully, I know that there are some universities and colleges that have picked it up and have it in their stacks. Um, on a personal level, if anyone were to email me, mm -hmm. um, I have the ebook version and I'm always happy to share that. Uh, you know, if you're a, a student or a lay person who isn't going to spend $150 on a book, let me know. I'll, I'll make sure you get a copy. So. <laughs> Students do seem to be wonderfully creative nowadays in terms of how they get their hands on material they need. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, as you're speaking, I do think uh, with apologies to Catherine Pickstock, um, that there there is seem there there is likely um a place to um write about the consummation of everything we've just discussed in sort of a liturgical context because i mean ultimately you and i are speaking as orthodox christians about orthodox philosophy most people's encounter with orthodoxy will be through icons incense and chant and um, they might be wondering, hearing us talk now, how um, how what we've just discussed actually relates to that experience of liturgy. And in fact, I think um, liturgy is precisely the place where it finds its consummation. So um, perhaps we will explore that in another talk. But in the meantime, I am delighted to have had this one. And uh, thank you very much for your time today. You're welcome. It's always a pleasure. You've been listening to Under My Roof, an Orthodox Christian podcast with me, Father Jacob Siemens. If you have enjoyed this episode and wish to support me and my parish, please be sure to tune in regularly. Also, please visit me at coffee.com slash priestjacob and consider buying me a coffee. That's coffee.com slash priestjacob, K-O-F-I dot com forward slash priest Jacob, 
all won't work. Thank you, and God bless you.